Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. 8.01 p.m., Monday, August 24th. 2020. <laughs> what is it? 2020. 2020, right. Not just 2-0, because you could change the date to a past date. Well, future date, I guess. I guess, yes. Uh, 2020. I'm at my farm here in Leroy, Illinois. And I am in my, what would I guess call it, my shelter here in Bolingbrook. <laughs> Are you on the Lanai? Uh, no, I, no, I am not on the Lanai. Can you hear a fan? No, but okay. I love the Lanai. Oh, it's too hot to be on the Lanai. I was actually going to think I was going to jump in the pool today. My little blow-up pool. John Graybill here. Mark McFarlane here. Talking about um, the big interview after the big race. What? I'm, I'm excited to hear it. I'm excited to learn more about it. Um, you know, growing up as a kid here in the Chicagoland area and being a kid of the early 80s, this man meant a lot to us here in Chicago and really kind of defined what the Indy 500 was all about in my age group. Yeah. It, right, right. It, um, the Indy 500 was yesterday, August 23rd. Uh, Sadly, it wasn't in May. was not in May. The so, interview uh, that we were about to listen to, though, that interview was done in January, if you can believe it, all the way back to January. And I was waiting it, waiting in the wings until the Indy 500, and, well, that didn't happen in May. But I think this gentleman, that we have not said his name, but I'm assuming everybody can guess who it's all about, fared pretty well at the Indy 500 this weekend. Yeah, his team, his team won. Tacoma, Tacoma Sato. Tacoma Sato, that's right. And then Graham Rahal, I can say his name, he came in third. <laughs> so they had a, they had another car. They had three cars in Indy this year, Ray Hall, Letterman, Langham. Did did you watch all of the race, John? I was out uh, flying around, and I watched the beginning of it before my plane took off. Uh, actually, I watched it some of it, some of it on the airplane, and then uh, some of it in the uh, terminal in Albuquerque. So I didn't see the end of it. No, but it was quite. I, I enjoyed it. There's there a lot of there were this Indy 500. There was a lot of changes, and that, that, I have never seen so many cars go into the pits at the same time in my entire life. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. It was a, it was an exciting race. I was lucky enough to uh, watch it over at the Autobahn with some friends over there. And uh, just a great group of people. And um, in between the races at the Autobahn that was happening, you know, we'd watch the race, then run back inside and watch a little of the Indy 500. And then you'd hear, oh, there's another race on the track. And we'd run outside and watch that and then run back in and watch the Indy. If that doesn't define a perfect car nuts weekend where you're sitting at the Autobahn and you're, you know, hanging with great friends and with a common theme with everybody that you know everybody's talking cars you're not the only you know car nerd geeking out over you know Takuma Sato or there was a really bad crash coming right in by the pit lane with one of the arrow cars and 
you know, I'm asking questions. And then all of a sudden out on the racetrack, we had a double yellow flag out on the racetrack. And I'm, I was asking somebody, well, why can't we pass beyond this part? You know, why is it only at this part? You know, cause like on the cart track, if there's a yellow flag, we slow down by the yellow flag. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we continue racing until we get by that yellow flag again. So they explained what the double yellow flag was. And so it was a great, great day. I, I just want to thank everybody who put everything on at the, at the track yesterday. Uh, awesome time. Thank you. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I wish I could have been there. I was out, uh, out flying around. Unfortunately I missed it, but it sounded like a absolute wonderful, wonderful day there. Um, yeah. So, you know, at the beginning of this, you'll kind of hear that Bobby Rahal tries to turn the tables on me and starts interviewing me. <laughs> yes. Really? I get, I get, I get caught up in that for just a brief moment. <clears throat> it was fun. As a matter of fact, today, because of the race, because of the interview, my neighbor, when I was a kid who took me by the time I was eight through 14, 15 years old, took me over to the time trials uh, all the time. We parked in the Speedway High School. And we walked in there. And he th- I actually called him today and, and regaled all the stories and how much he meant to me and how much how, how cool it was for him to take me over there. And he's uh, my neighbor's 89 years old now. And um, he's sharp as a tack. And he was he was uh, telling me other stories that he enjoyed he started going to the uh chuck daly's his name he started going to the race in 1961 and he went for 43 consecutive years oh now see that's those are the guys that you wish somewhere how or another their name is put on a brick at (laughs) at the brickyard i mean if you after 40 years they should give you a brick that's just my opinion you know we'll we'll tell mr we'll tell mr penske that you know because he's definitely the owner of the place I uh, said AJ Foyt won in '61. That was the first guy that he he saw. He saw when he loved AJ Foyt, and when AJ Foyt got mad and started grabbing wrenches and working on his own car, he he loved that. Oh my gosh, he loved that. That's but, awesome. Um, well, to your to to the, for this interview, congratulations. I bet you he must have been thrilled. And I know you were because you kind of you told me one day back. I think it was in maybe January. You told me it was um, where you got the phone call from Bobby. And it's like, you know, hi, John Graybill, Bobby Rahal here, <laughs> just staring at the phone. So you're probably your 14 year old self was just smiling and giggling, thinking, why would Bobby Rahal ever have the option to call me? Why? Because we love the, because of the love of the Autobahn and all the things that we've been doing. That's right. And with that, let's welcome Bobby Rahal for part one on the Autobahn Country Club podcast. Well, that's pretty cool. So you were uh, you you flew uh, active and then you went to the guard. No, I actually started in the guard. The oh, whole, did you? I was in the guard the whole time. Oh, I'll be. Which was um, Illinois. Yep, yeah. in Peoria. Yeah. And I was just I was super lucky to. Um, yeah, I was just in. As when I went in to interview, um, I was already out of college and mm. literally saw Top Gun one too many times one summer. Yeah. I said, hey, I could do that. Yeah. And the colonel said uh, that I was interviewing. Had you flown before no, that? No. No, I'd literally walked in off the street and said, I actually took the naval test. I actually went into the recruiter in Bloomington, Illinois, and the Navy guy goes, the Air Force guy says, you won't be able to pass the test. You will not pass the test, so don't worry. And um, 
Which test is that? The physical the, the, test? The, 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 to get in, the entrance oh, test, oh, the written test yeah. to get in. And so uh, the, air, the Navy guy goes, hey, we'll give you the test. Yeah. So I went up to Naval Air Station Great Lakes, Great Lakes yeah. and took the test and didn't pass. No. And I'm like, oh. Well, I knew a family friend who years I I've taught martial arts my whole life, and he would pick his kids up for my martial arts class. And he said, and I said, oh, that'd be cool to do someday. And he goes, well, get a college education and call me. And I remembered that. Thank goodness yeah. that I remembered that. And so um, I called him up. He said, no, you, you get a book and you prepare for the test and you do all this other stuff. And I, well, I didn't know. So when I went to the Air Force, thank goodness I went there and um, I was able to you know, prepare for the test, and I did real good on it, and did all the other stuff. And What do they have on the test that would be so, I it mean, was, are they asking, you know, aeronautical questions? There was you know, slight, questions, you know? slight, slight questions like yeah, that, you know, yeah. um, lift, drag, thrust, yeah. weight, and, you know, what's an aileron, what's an elevator, just yeah. simple stuff. But I hadn't, I didn't know that when I took yeah, the Navy yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, math, I mean, I hadn't done math, you know, longhand math or whatever you want to go for yeah, years. Yeah. And so I, I, and that's just to get my speed up. You know, I did a yeah. bunch of that. And then there was, um, and I remember there was the navigation portion. You had to find all these charts. Well, they gave a scratch piece of paper. So I would use them as straight edges because mm -hmm. if you could follow. And I was just using that as all over the place. And so I breezed through that. Huh. And then I was the last guy standing. And then that's the reason I got to go because yeah. I was the only guy that had everything done. Huh. And then there you the go. rest is history, yeah. I guess. Cool. Cool. So, Those must have been fun to uh, felt fun to fly. It was. Yeah. It was. I flew an F eight. I got a ride in an F eighteen after I won Indy in '86. Uh, and uh, you know, of course, you get up there, you fly it. But shit, anybody could fly it when you're up there, right? You know. Oh my god, that'd be but, great. Uh, and Graham, my son Graham, went with the Thunderbirds like two or three years ago. Oh wow. Yeah, out in Phoenix. Yeah, that's that's what I flew. That the yeah. same. I think they're new models. It used to be the older F-16s because yeah, they were a little tighter what, turning, but I think yeah. the new ones now. Yeah, they pulled nine Gs. He did. Yeah. That's a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's painful. It hurts. Yeah, the F-18, they didn't, at that time, because this is when they were just coming out, they were transitioning guys from, I was out of Lemoore Naval Air Station mm -hmm. out in California. Yeah. And uh, so they were transitioning guys out of A6s and A4s into F18s. So it was really at the kind of the start of that whole. And they they didn't pull. They had like a governor, a G governor. I think they were pulling like maybe seven, maybe. You know, so. Well, I mean, that's yeah. a lot too. Oh, but seven's still. a lot, right? Yeah. If I pulled seven Gs today, I'd pass out. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. you get a, it's a little bit of. I remember going and working out. And they talked to them about the leg strength being so important for G tolerance, yeah. and I. Remember, as a good motivator. Every time I'd go to the gym, you know, dying in an airplane was a good motivator yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To, to do yeah, a few more had, squats. Yeah, yeah. I had to, so you had to go through the whole, I had to, you know, it's the Navy, you had to go through the whole, you had to go to the dunker, you had to swim, you had to, you oh, know. Oh, really? Yeah, for a ride. I go, hey, I'm, I'm not trying they to join. They did centrifuge too? Yeah. No, they didn't do centrifuge. But you had to do But all they your... showed photos of the centrifuge, you know, the movies of the guys, you know, you ready? Yeah, ready. And the guy's sitting there and all of a sudden, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It was pretty funny, but of course not very funny when if it was you. But uh, yeah, but you were used to pulling tons of G's. Yeah, but they're different. Lateral, they're right? They're lateral. lateral G's, yeah. not not you know vertical G's. Right. Or I guess you want to yeah. however you want to say X Y or the X axis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so here we are. <laughs> we could talk about. It. I could talk about this all day. You, you know, you'd sit there and you'd get bored. But anyway.
Oh, outstanding. I was That was funny because when we were to go there, just one final comment from me at least, you go to the officers club after the day, right? Mm -hmm. That's because we were out there like three days. I flew the simulator, the aircraft landing simulator, I flew the jet, you know, the fighter simulator. Um, and uh, so I was there three days and, um, uh, and you know, of course you go to the officers club, have a beer or whatever, and all the pilots wanted to talk about was racing, and all I wanted to talk about was flying. You know, it was. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to waste your waste your battery. No, 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 no. This is this is great. Uh, I was at the '86. So my buddies, I was in college, and my buddies, we were going over. And it was tough. You couldn't get a ticket back to Indy 500 mm -hmm, back in the right, day. Yeah. And so we. We went sun Sunday. We went Monday because mm. we had to come back. Because that was all of our money. We were yeah, not yeah. going to waste that investment. Yeah. And then we came back Saturday to see you to yeah. see you win. Yeah, that was a magical. That week. was a good day. Yeah, yeah, because we were there the whole month at, at everything. Yeah, um, it was cool. Yeah, it was uh, ended up well. It was a long <laughs> week. <laughs> well. Bobby Rahal, welcome to the Audubon Country Club podcast. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure to have you on here. Um, we're sitting in a January day. It's not that cold, but uh, January day here in your garage. Um, and you, you grew up in Chicago, right? I did, in a western suburb, Glen Ellen. So uh, probably from Joliet here, probably, I don't know, 25 miles, almost probably almost due north of where we are today. And high school and high school, yeah, grade school, high school. I was actually <laughs> born in northern Ohio, uh, near Cleveland, but we were only there. I was born January, uh, January tenth, nineteen fifty-three. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, happy, um, soon to be happy birthday. Yeah, I, I stopped celebrating those. <laughs> okay. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, January tenth, fifty-three. But we moved to Chicago area. I think maybe six months after I was born, and really, really. Um, Lived here uh, in the Chicago area from 54 all the way till, my goodness, probably uh, well through college, through even early years of racing. Of course, then I started moving all over the place for racing, but my family, my brother's still here in the Chicago area. So, um, yeah, Chicago's definitely, you know, what I consider uh, my home. And so what's your first car memory? I mean, is your dad, your dad raced yeah, too, Yeah, right? well, I was... I was very lucky. Um, my dad um, was into sports cars um, if, as far back as I can remember. I mean, I have photos of uh, me and uh, you know, pictures of he and I in his little Triumph TR2, probably somewhere around 56 or 7, somewhere around there. Um, you know, he raced as a hobby. So for me, my summers growing up were, you know, Little League baseball and going racing with my dad. and. Um, Never thinking that I would, you know, never thinking I'd race, let alone do it for a living. Um, but I was very fortunate, you know, that especially during an unbelievable decade of the 60s in terms of cars and what have you, uh, you know, he was the only guy, he, he was one of the few guys in Glen Allen with sports cars. And I think he was the only guy in Glen Allen with a race car in his garage. And so we, it, it attracted all these young guys from that era that would come out and hang out at my house, you know, from the time I was, you know, seven, eight years old till the time I was 18. And, uh, you know, they worked on my dad's car. They took me places. I mean, it, it was really kind of car nirvana, you know, for me. And um, so I, yeah, I just grew up in it and it was definitely uh, uh, in my blood uh, for sure. And, um, you know, 
that's kind of what got me into racing because, uh, you know, he had an old racing car. He said, why don't you take it, go get your SCCA license, which I did. Um, but we're talking very low-key racing. And, um, and then kind of How know, old the were rest you? is history. How old were you? Well, in, in those days, um, you had to be 21 to, to race because that was the, uh, the legal age for an adult. And, of course, all the, you know, you voted at 21 at that time. Um, and, of course, all the insurance forms, everything was 21, 21, 21. So uh, you couldn't vote at that time until you were 21. Mm -hmm. And, well, in, 20, in 73, they changed it to 20, or to 18, I should say. So I started racing uh, at 20 years old uh, in 1973. And, uh, um, yeah, now you got kids racing cars at 14 years old. I mean, it's crazy. But, uh, uh, but in those days, it was uh, up until 73, it was 21 years old. Wow. And had you worked on cars too? Oh yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I was a trained mechanic, uh, but um, but certainly, you know, uh, took help take care of my dad's cars. Um, of course, we go to the races, especially later on, uh, in the late '60s, '69, '70, '71. He went to Sebring, went to Watkins Glen six hours, so I crewed for him. Uh, crewed at the SCCA races that he ran. Uh, you know, we would always we always had a guy that was probably um, what you would call a real mechanic, quote unquote, mm -hmm. that would um, that would lead that whole thing. But um, but yeah, I did. You know, I learned over time. Um, you know, a fair amount of things about preparing a car for racing. And of course, when I first started racing, it was um, you know you were the chief cook, bottle washer. You know, you you towed the car, you loaded the car in the trailer, you towed the car, you unloaded it, you prepped it for the practice, for the race, whatever. So you were kind of a one-man band uh, at the time, and that changes, obviously, as, as time goes on. But uh, so I, I had a, so I had a, um, a uh, you know, what I, I guess I'd call a, uh, an, uh, a little bit of a, of a mechanical uh, education. And I think that did kind of help later on, because in racing, uh, you didn't have, when I first started, you didn't have all this data acquisition that, that occurs today. So it was really kind of, you had to have a bit of a mechanical understanding to be able to convey to your mechanic or what have you what was actually going on you know, uh, while you were out there. So, um, so in any event, so I think, it was, I think all those years spent under, over, inside my dad's race cars had some value. And they were Triumphs, is that what you said? No, at the time, uh, that was his first sports car, but in, in the 60s, I mean, he started out with, um, started out with like an Alfa Romeo, um, you know, coupe, and, but then got into sports racing cars. So he got, had a center seat Cooper, little 1100cc, uh, four-cylinder engine in it. Then he got into Elvis, which were much, a much more current car at the time. Again, small bore, you know, 1100cc. Uh, and then in 67, uh, or 66, he actually got into an Alva Porsche, which was a hybrid car, pretty famous cars at the time. And that was 1800cc, you know, slowly grew up, but he never really got into anything more than two liters. Uh, uh, his, probably his last car of note was a Porsche Carrera 6, which is very similar to the one behind me. Um, which is a and great that, car, that right? was a it's two a liter. Famous, famous car. Yeah, right? that was a two liter car. And, <clears throat> So he raced that and at the end of 68, 9, 70, and 71. Um, so again, um, nothing, um, uh, you know, for my dad, racing was kind of a, 
I think as much as he loved it, it was a you know, third or fourth priority for him, his business and family and other things came first, so he never really had new race cars. Um, but, uh, uh, but, you know, he made it. We had, we, we had a good time, and in those days, uh, you know, you could, um, you know, there was, you know, the, the grid was full of, you know, newer cars, older cars. It was a real, it was a real um, mishmash of cars, whereas today you see it's everything's more current on a, on a starting grid than it once was. But uh, anyway, we had fun. What business was he in? He's in the food business. Yeah. Wow. And he spent most, and so after the Ohio, did he, he spent most of his time here then to retire here? Oh, yeah. Well, he, yeah, he, uh, of course, he, uh, um, I mean, it's an interesting story because he, uh, what got him involved in racing is, I, I just can't tell you, because there was nothing in his background that would tell you that, uh, um, you know, it's easy for me because because of him. And right. Because of me, Graham, you know, my brother raced for a little bit. Um, but my dad was a, yeah, first generation uh, immigrant from uh, Lebanon. Uh, went to World War II, 17, got out, and, and, and he went in 42, got out and got out in 45 after the end of the war, was in the South Pacific, got on the GI Bill, goes to college, starts working for a cousin. You know, I mean, this is, there was nothing in his background that would, that would say, oh yeah, that's why he'd be interested in racing. But, um, you know, but anyway, you know, he started, he got the bug somehow. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, thanks to him, really, thanks to him and my mother, because my mother was a big supporter, uh, you know, we are where we are. Where's your mother from? She was from Northern Ohio. They were both from Ohio. Okay. He was from Cleveland. She was from Medina, Ohio, which is just south of Cleveland. So when did your grant? Your grandparents come. They came in '24. My dad was born in '24, so my oh. grandmother was pregnant with my father when so really early way on. over. Yeah. yeah so, wow. uh, yeah. So they were in that that big immigration wave of that period of time. That and, wasn't um, that was Ellis Island time. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Have you been back there to look at the? No, the I haven't. And it, it would be interesting to do that because they've, uh, of course, Lee Iacocca is the guy who really rejuvenated, led the rejuvenation of that. Of Ellis Island, it's supposed to be quite an impressive uh, yeah, I've heard museum it's pretty, today. Pretty cool, yeah. yeah. So my my relatives came in the 1700s. Um, yeah, you beat us here. <laughs> yeah. So my my came, claim to fame is uh, Daniel Boone was my oh, really? was my great 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 uncle. Sister That's Sarah cool. was my grandma. That's so. cool. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. So uh, uh, I found that I went. I was flying on a layover in Salt Lake City, and one of the flight attendants was Mormon, and she said, "You need to go." to the genealogy center. And I go, what is that? So she took me there mm. and they um, brought me in. I said, well, I'm trying, my grandpa always said this, but we have no proof that Daniel Boone was related. Mm. And they said, well, let's find out. And they were super helpful. It was pretty cool to, yeah. to go through that. It took a couple hours, but I was the family hero when I came I'll home. bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. So you start, did you... Do a lot of drive? Were you driving at sixteen? No, then? well, street, street. Yeah, right? yeah but, sort of. Yeah. I mean, not but, racing, but no, no. Um, I mean, you know, we, you know, there were go kart. There was go kart racing around <laughs> at the time, but it was pretty small potatoes compared to today. You know, today is everybody thinks their son's going to be the next Jeff Gordon or you know Emerson Fittipaldi or whatever. So Michael Schumacher. So <clears throat> you know, they've got kids five, six, seven years old racing go karts. In those days, that just didn't happen, and. Uh, of course, in those days, in the 60s, nobody, you didn't really make any money racing, you know. Uh, 
you know, I think that which is one of the great things about that era is guys had to be able to drive everything because that's how you, you got paid every time mm -hmm. you drove. So, you, you know, you have you know you'd be driving six eight times a month, you know, in, in the old days. So today everybody just specializes in one in one category really. So, um, but yeah, I mean, even when I even when I started racing, you know, uh, again the idea that you would do it for a living was just so far-fetched to, to, to me because, um, you know, my family was, you, you, you know, you grew up, you got your education, went to college, got your education, got a good job, and, and if it was good enough to allow you to go racing, that's how you did it. Um, you know, for me, it wasn't like, it wasn't like an Andretti or an Unser where it's kind of like the family business. Right. There's kind of an expectation. There was no expectation uh, on my side, which might have been a bit of an advantage for me or you know, only because there was no pressure. There was no, you know, uh, you know nothing saying you were gonna do this whether you wanted to or not. Um, I mean, I wanted to race because I wanted to race. You know, I just loved it. And, uh, uh, and, I'd, and I'd seen great drivers, you know, from being there with my dad, you know, going up to Elkhart Lake, uh, to Road America, since I could remember. I mean, uh, all throughout the 60s, it was just a very, it, it just really captured my imagination and captured my, you know, I mean, my, my dad used to complain that he thought I knew the inside of road and track better than my math book, which is probably uh, true. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate that it all worked out because God knows what I'd be doing otherwise. What was your degree in? History. History, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't going to be a teacher, you know. What do you do with a history degree? Well, I don't know. You can do anything, I suppose, because it doesn't. It's not like you're going to be a doctor. Where it's a very specific major. Uh, for me, it was. Um, I don't know. Just I have an interest in history, as you can probably tell, with everything around here, mm -hmm. and especially automotive history. And uh, uh, yeah, I don't know, but. Um, but I had no burning desire to be anything, you know, when, when I was 18. Um, uh, but when I started racing, all of a sudden I'm starting to have some success, again, at smaller levels, you know, lower levels. But, you know, you start winning. You know, when I graduated from college, I thought, you know, what the hell, what's one year out of my life? Let's, let's see how far we can go. See if it works. Yeah. What was the first racetrack you raced on? Well, I actually drove, the first time I drove, my dad used to go up to, to Canada to race. Really? Uh, back in the 60s and, uh, and loved it. Because in those days, Canada was like going to England. I mean, everybody had an English accent. Um, the Canadians were a lot, they were, pretty, they, were a lot, they were a lot of fun. You know, a little, they played things a little looser than here. Uh, Americans tended to be more uptight. You know, the Canadians a little freer. Um, and so anyway, we went to a race in a place called Harewood Acres, which is an airport track. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's near just south of London, uh, Ontario, not far from, uh, from Lake Ontario and or Lake Erie, I guess. It would be Erie or Ontario. I think it would be, I think it'd be Erie. Uh, anyway, um, and uh, in those days they had a, they, had a, they always had a, a novice race, and it didn't matter what car you had. The, the qualification was, had you ever raced before? And mm -hmm. if the answer was no, you'd go into the novice race. And, uh, of course, over here, and this is 1970, so I was 17 years old. Here in the States, you couldn't drive because you had to be 21. Um, and, uh, but in, the, in Canada, 
you know, it's almost like if you could sign your name, you were good to go. And so he said, hey, <laughs> do you want to, do you want to, you want to drive in the novice race? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so off we went, and um, that was my first race. Um, and it was fr frightening, you know, scary, because, you know, you never, you know, you look back now, it's kind of laughable because those cars weren't that fast, but if you'd never driven one before, you know, it seemed fast. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, that's, that was it. And then I drove the next year in 71 at a much, at a much, uh, much more daunting circuit, which was Mossport, uh, which is still there today and is really a... a a very uh, fast, very challenging circuit that really... Where's, where's that? It's just east of uh, Toronto. Oh, also in Canada? Um, yeah. <clears throat> Again, because couldn't, I couldn't drive here because I was, I was 18 and 71. So, uh, you know, I went there, did a race there. Um, uh, again, a novice. How'd you, do, how'd you do in your first race, your novice race? Well, the first race, you know, I was, I was doing really well, and it had rained, and again, I threw around an airport. And... Um, I hit a puddle and went spinning off into this farm. Luckily, there was nothing to hit. It was just dirt, I mean, you know, farm field. And got stuck, you know, up to the axles in mud. And I remember my dad yelling at me, like, who do you think you are, Jim Clark? And, yeah. and so they had two races. We went on Saturday, one on Sunday. So on Sunday, I did the other one, and I was much more, uh, I did all right. You know, I can't tell you exactly how I did right now, but I think I finished sixth or something. What kind but of car was it? It was the Alva Porsche that... Uh, that he had been racing, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, so by the time after I hosed off the car and got all the mud out of it, uh, <laughs> you know, the next day was a better day, but again, probably a little chastened by that point for me, uh, uh, but still a, a, a great experience. And um, did you know about the race line and braking zones and? And stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe I guess. I, I to be honest. I mean, it's a long time ago, and you're on an airport. I mean, it's you know the, the corners are you know, sixty feet wide, yeah. and you yeah. know. Um, but again, I think you know I had observed a lot of you know a lot of great drivers over the years at various events, Can Am races at Elkhart's or uh, the World Endurance Sports Car races, Sebring, Watkins Glen. You know, seeing great drivers. You know, like. Joe Siffert and P Ronnie Peterson and and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi and all these guys and uh, you know you, you all you have to do you observe and you kind of can figure it out. So, uh, um, but you know when you get in a car, it's a whole different animal. You know it's loud. You're low to the ground. It has much greater capability than your street car. So it's a it's a learning a learning experience for sure. But uh, you know I. Um, I, like I said, I, I, I think I took to it relatively easily, but, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not going to say I went out and I was on the, on the level that, you know, guys were that were, um, you know, when you start racing, you start racing at, to a certain level, and the next step up is a big step, and the next step up is a big step, and you don't, you're not quite sure where you're going to run out of talent, <laughs> you know, right. and, uh, <laughs> Uh, all you can do is go out and do your best. And so, uh, you know, and that really is kind of you know, in the beginning of my career, uh, especially after I graduated school and I was really pursuing racing more seriously, I really based my continuation on whether I thought I was, I was improving and I was able to, to compete at that level. I, I think if I had 
felt at one time that I would not be able to make the next step, then I probably would have stopped. So, uh, but I was, again, fortunate that uh, it all worked out. And did you get, at what point did you kind of get coached? Was your coaching along? The, I mean, no, no, they didn't have coaches in those days. <laughs> they, they didn't have driving school, although I think maybe Bondurant was probably starting in the mid-70s or something. But no, in those days, I mean, it was on-the-job training. You know, you just, um, you know, uh, at least the way we, I did it. You know, there was, there was nobody there to hold your hand, you know, tell you. You know, and, and frankly, you know, if, if there had, you know, especially if it had been my father, I probably wouldn't have listened to him anyway. So, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a different animal today compared to those days. Today you've got coaches. Today you've got even very experienced drivers have coaches today. And, uh, you know, guys who won the Indy 500 have coaches today. That never was the case, at least mm -hmm. as I went through the process. Yeah, my, speaking of father and son, so my son and I snowboard, and uh, he's 15, and I, up until last year, we're, he was probably a little bit better than me last year, but I, he wasn't, I was always encouraging, hey, you got to switch sides, and when he was a little kid, I would, hey, we didn't let him drink Coke and caffeine, I said, hey, I'll give you Mountain Dew yeah. if you just practice on one side of your snowboard. <laughs> so we just got back from skiing, and he just is killing it on the slopes, just yeah. killing it, and I said, we got on the lift, and I go, are you happy? that I really pushed you. I mean, look where you are now yeah. because I pushed you. You know, and he's just like, I guess. Yeah, he's not going <laughs> to give you credit, believe me. Yeah, I mean, I've been through that with Graham. You know, it's, uh, it's like when he was racing go-karts, and he was very good in karts, and, you know, I'd give him some advice. He goes, Dad, you never drove a go-kart. So that's like, what do you know? You know? Oh, and uh, and it was a little eight, nine-year-old <laughs> punk, you know? Uh, and it's pretty much that same way today, you know. Uh, I mean, it's funny, but every now and then, when you think they don't, they aren't listening to you. Then maybe when you, he thinks you're out of earshot, you hear him say something that you had said, and then it's like, okay. But he's not, you know. As I, as I tell many people, <laughs> no son is going to give their father credit for anything, right? It's, so anyway, yeah, it was, it was funny. Um, so uh, you graduate college and you're racing SCCA stuff yep. around here, yep. um, and then. Like what in the United States? What was the first? Where was that first race? First race for me uh, was driver school, SCCA driver school at Mid America Raceway in Wentzville, Missouri, uh, which no longer exists. Wentzville, it was a hell of a racetrack, um, long road road course. Road course. Oh yeah, I never I never did oval. The first oval I ever did was when I got into an Indy car. So it was all. I mean, my goal was to my goal at the time was to get get to Formula One, which I did, but. Uh, not for very long, um, but I, I didn't really have any interest in oval racing, Indy car racing, because it was all on ovals. And I, you know, you're, you're kind of a of a of a um, arrogant road racer, and you think eh, nothing to turning left. You know what's you know, and you find out later on that there's a lot to turning left. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so was Formula One popular back? Then? I mean, cause oh, it's huge it, now, right? Uh, United well, States. But no, I mean, I think it was more popular in the States then than it is today. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it's not, Formula One's kind of a blip on the radar screen right now. But because um, you had, in those days, in the 60s and 70s, you had Dan Gurney, Mario. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of U.S. guys, Bob Bondurant, a lot of guys were racing Formula One um, at the time, particularly in the 60s, but even in the 70s, you know. And... Um, 
so you know, Mark Donahue, Peter Revson, uh, you know, the list goes on. And uh, so Formula One was deaf, plus that the fact that you were on a world stage, you know, that you were racing against the best in mm -hmm. the world, not the best in one country. Right. And, uh, and of course, road races. And when I did race in Europe in 78 and 9 and 80, to go race at Le Mans or race at Nürburgring or race at uh, Brands Hatch or Monaco uh, or any of the circuits you know that I'd read about. I mean, this was a culmination of a dream for me. So, uh, uh, so early in my career, all my focus was on uh, trying to get to Formula One, hmm. and uh, in a, you know I, I raced uh, in '75 when I graduated college. I went to. I raced in Formula Atlantic, which at the time was kind of the category over here for guys who wanted to get over there. And that was open wheel? That was open wheel. And uh, 1600cc, four cam, or two cam, four valve per cylinder. Uh, very they still have Formula Atlantic today. It's a little bit different. But, but you looked at the starting grid, and it was, there was 25, 30 cars within two seconds of each other. There was, it was the most competitive wow. racing in, in North America at the time. And you had guys like Gilles Villeneuve and K.K. Rosberg and me and there were a number of guys that came out of that era that went on to um, you know, a lot of success. Rosberg became world champion. Of course, Villeneuve uh, you know, drove for Ferrari, won, I don't know how many, eight, maybe eight Grand Prix. Uh, unfortunately, was killed in Formula One. But you know, myself, Danny Sullivan, uh, you know, any number of guys, 500 winners, uh, came out of that series. So that was kind of the place to be. How did you get into it? Did you just buy a car or did you have yeah, a sponsor? Yeah. Well, in 74, I had a friend of mine in college who was from the Schlitz Brewing family uh, agreed to buy a car. And um, the, guy was, the, guy was, the guy I bought it from was a guy in, in Glen Ellen, uh, a guy named Dave Ralston. He was a Delta Airlines pilot, and we'd known him because he was an SCCA guy. Anyway, he bought this open wheel car. He had a Formula B car, they called him. And, uh, and so we went to Indianapolis Raceway Park, which was a, a favorite circuit of mine uh, in like September of 74. And now I'm racing my first open wheel race and I'm racing against guys that I really uh, respected and I won. And uh, um, so, you know, thinking, well, that's the next step is Formula Atlantic and, and um, you know, see how good you are. So I remember going to the first race, and again, there were a lot of really good drivers that had been in that category for a while, and I thought, boy, if I'm, if I'm like 10th on the grid, I'll be really happy, and I was second. And then the next race, I was on pole. Wow. So, um, and your dad was there helping? Is he, was he my dad, you know, by that time, we actually had a mechanic, a guy named Wiley McCoy, who ended up later on at McLaren in, uh, in Detroit. Uh, but Wiley and I, off we went and uh, spent the year of 1975 doing that kind of race. And I won the SECA National Championship at the, at the end of that year. So, you know, the future was looking bright. And, um, and it was a thrill. And, uh, you know, and from, from, and then we had, an up, we had up and down years. It wasn't like it was a you know, straight line to the top by any means. But uh, every year kept persevering, kept pushing. Um, and uh, like I said, here we are. And the, 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 what kind of car was that? Is it was it, a Lola at the time. Lola. Yeah. And how long did you have that car? That you just for the year, because just in those it. days, you know, in those days, uh, we were, I was just talking to somebody, I think yesterday, actually, you know, if you'd been smart, you would have kept all the cars you ever drove because they'd be worth a lot of money today. But in those days, you couldn't wait to get rid of it because you wanted the next best thing. 
right? So at the end of 75, we, we, uh, I drove a march, it's called a march, and then end of 70, drove that march in 76, 7, 78, it was a Ralt. These are all European uh, manufa English manufacturers. And your and sponsor, the, the Schlitz, was? No, sponsor by that time, uh, I had Red Roof Inns, which was uh, later on, uh, Jim Truman, who owned Red Roof Inns, started it, uh, was really the guy who got me into IndyCar. And, and of course, when we won Indy, he was the team owner, True Sports. He, he died right after Indy because of cancer. Um, but Red Roof was there. You know, in, in those days, you just, uh, you know, racing wasn't as expensive as it is today. It wasn't as complicated, uh, as sophisticated as it is today. But you scraped, you scraped deals together, you know. And, was it, and, uh, was it as, as challenging or as important? I mean, I guess, you know, getting a sponsor money is important, but was it as challenging like it is today to oh, get well, sponsors and stuff? Heck, you know, when I, uh, you know, when I got into racing, it was just in time for the fuel crisis. Oh, right, sure. You know, you go to talk to companies and, you know, they you want them to go racing. They're saying, there's guys, there's people, there's thousand people lined up around the block waiting to get two gallons of gasoline. You want to go racing? You know, I mean, so it was a tough sell. And it wasn't like it is. It's a lot easier to find a sponsor today than it was then. Uh, you didn't have TV. Uh, you didn't have anywhere near the media coverage that you have today. Um, so you just had guys that loved racing and wanted to be around. Yeah, you just you just had to you know you had to learn how to sell. You know, and you were you know you were kind of selling yourself. You were selling the sport. You were selling what was good for this company and. You know, you learned a lot in those days, and, and that certainly carried through and probably still carries through for me today because as we talk to sponsors today, companies today, to join us, it's, um, you know, you, you have to have a pretty good feel for the dynamics that they're looking for and how, how you can solve that. Do you think that that's equally important as the driving skill, as the ability to go out and get those sponsors? Or? You know, the great line and the, the right stuff, right, is when the guy says, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. That's right. And yeah. that's racing. Yeah. Hmm. And so then, so was the first, when you went to Formula One, was that the? That was the end of 78. 78? Yeah. And yeah. is it similar similar type schedule? I ever say there wasn't a United States race back then, was there? Oh, yeah. Uh, I raced at Watkins Glen. That was the U.S. Grand Prix. Oh, and then, okay. well, yeah, there had been the U.S. Grand Prix since late 50s. First one was at Sebring. Then it went to Riverside, California. Then it ended up in Watkins Glen for many years. Uh, so I raced at Watkins Glen in 78. And then the, the, uh, the following weekend was the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal which was the first time they raced there. So, um, oh yeah, the, the, and the U.S. Grand Prix was a huge event. So, uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And of course, I had raced in Europe in Formula 3 in 78, which was a, Formula 3 was kind of considered the <clears throat> stepping stone to Formula 1. Had a lot of good races over there in 78. Um, and I raced also Formula Atlantic here, so I was going back and forth. Uh, and um, you know, it was in two different cars, two different type of oh, cars. Yeah. yeah. Was that different? Was that difficult jumping from one car to the next? Or they they're, they're different, but you just have to figure it you out. You know, you gotta figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't, if you can't adapt, then you're not gonna go very far. You know, back so I, I graduated high school in '84. You know, and Indy was everything to us. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that was we we never paid attention. I mean, the last few years, the only time I've really paid attention to Formula One. Yeah. Um, 
but in, you know, Indy was everything. Of course, we were so close, you know, yeah. being down the road, you yeah. know, but the whole series, you know, I don't. Know I think we, it's, you know, I think it still is in the sense <laughs> that, you know, you look at the, and of course the split was, was a bad thing for IndyCar racing, but if you look at the crowds and you look at what's going on today in the last five, seven years, it's really, I think, as big as it ever was. And, you know, you go, I mean, the, the tickets, ticket holders are families, they're, you know, they've been in the, a family for generations. Yep, yep. They become contentious points in divorce cases. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, who's gonna get the tickets for the 500? I mean, it's really an amazing, uh, there is nothing in racing like the Indy, Indy 500. And, uh, 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 you know, every May when you go there, it just, especially as you get older, it just, you know, reminds you or it just confirms, you know, that feeling that there's just nothing like this. Um, the immensity of the event and, and, you know, you know, of course, in Indianapolis, it used to be the only game in town. Now they've got football and basketball and everything else. But but still, the month of May is uh, a very special time and um, and uh, and people support it and follow it. And, um, you know, I think that no matter how little anybody knows about racing, they know they know about the Indy 500. And that's unlike, I think, any other sport. <laughs> And did, did you go to the race at all when you were younger? Or did you I went once it? with a friend of mine from school. His father's company was involved in the 500 in a small way, or with a team or something, a small way, it was 65. And uh, 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 that was, you know, it was a practice day. And in those days, you know, the month of May was like five weeks long. So most of the time, it was guys who were trying to make the field were out there running around. You didn't, when we were there, we, I don't think I ever saw Although I did find some autographs from from that day, and I'm trying to remember who the hell I who the hell I got I got to dig that up. But um, but there was hardly any running, and the guys who were running were kind of they weren't the top guys by any means. So it was a little bit of a disappointment. I have a picture of myself right above Victory Circle at that time um, <laughs> with my friends. Uh, but no, and 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 really the only thing that interested me, and again, kind of the arrogant road racer. Um, sports car racer was I, I followed it the guys I found my hero was Jim Clark as you can tell from this car and all that stuff over there and I loved it when Jim Clark won the 500 because like, yeah, he kicked all those oval guys ass you know <laughs> uh, and um, and of course Jackie Stewart was strong that Graham Hill won there I mean it seemed like at that Dan Gurney I looked at him as a road racer uh, which is really what he was initially, and then obviously got into ovals, but he was still a road racer. Probably the bulk of his experience, of his record was in road racing. So I looked at it as, you know, the, to me that the month of May was about how the road racers were gonna make the oval guys look bad. And so I, you know, in 72 when Mark Donahue won, you know, I was listening to the, in those days they didn't have it on TV, it was the radio. And um, of course he won, I was like, yeah, another road racer kick their ass and <laughs> and then you go there you know, here I am and 10 years later in 82 and first oval I go to is Phoenix tight little bullring thing and it's like holy shit you know this is this is not what I thought it was going to be like you know it's not easy it's not simple it's scary it's because we didn't have anybody in our team that we don't have we didn't have one person in our team that had any oval track experience so it was again on the job training and when you, you look at an oval car, every wheel's pointed every different direction and different cambers and toes and you name it. And um, 
and here we showed up with a car that looked like it was going to do a road race. And um, you then you find out, you know, you start to understand and you, you get a feel for what's going on. And then probably the most fun I've ever had is on an oval when it's a really good car. Um, and that was 82, you said? 82 was my rookie year. 82. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and was it the availability of, of, was it the challenge you were looking for when you switched over, when you switched over from road racing? Well, it was what or happened. Really, was what, what, no. What 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 happened, um, or what was happening, is that um, at the end of you know eighty eighty one, um, more and more road courses were coming on the schedule. Um, you know, in the mid seventies, they had Formula five thousand, which was a great series. Um, I drove Can Am in 79, 80, and 81, and these were basically single seat Can Am cars. And, um, and but by 80, 81, um, again, IndyCar had always raced on, on road courses, but just not that many of them. And you know, I think even starting like mid 60s, mid late 60s, you know, they raced at IRP, they raced at. Uh, Mossport, they raced at, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Riverside, California. Um, but it wasn't a, a big part of the schedule. Mainly, it was, you know, it was oval tracks. Um, and in, early, in the early 70s, up until, I'm not sure what year it was, probably early 70s, 71, somewhere around there, the IndyCar schedule included dirt track racing. So Really? Oh, yeah. So it was not, oh, just, no idea, not just ovals, you know, on a paved oval, but you had to drive sprint cars and what have you. <laughs> um, and um, but by eighty, as I say, by uh, seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, all of a sudden you started to get in the five thousand series died. All of a sudden you're starting to get this kind of coming together uh, with these various tracks. And so by eighty one, um, I mean in, in eighty and eighty and eighty one, I'd reached out to Roger Penske, let me drive the road courses for you. Uh, got a got a don't call us we'll call you letter. Pat Patrick same thing. Uh, Pat had Johnny Rutherford. Uh, he had uh, he had Gordon Johncock driving and great oval drivers. Uh, anyway, uh, well by the end of '81, yes, the Can-Am was kind of starting to to do this, and IndyCar Kart at the time was starting to add more and more road courses. And so uh, for me, all of a sudden now, it's like, okay, half the, se half the series is road courses. And um, although in 82, we had 10 races, we had Indy, we had two races at Phoenix, two races at Milwaukee, 82, we had Cleveland. So that was the first year of the Cleveland Grand Prix. Uh, we went to Pocono. So, okay, 82, maybe we only had one, one road course, but... Or 82, only one road course, but 83, now you got Riverside, you got Cleveland, you got Elkhart Lake, that was the first year at Elkhart. Uh, now all of a sudden, the, you know, the growth of the series, and you're only at Phoenix now once, maybe, you're only at Milwaukee once. So now the growth of the series is in road racing, and that's what really uh, drew not just me and our team, but a lot of guys left uh, the Can-Am series, Carl Haas left Can-Am, went to IndyCar, went to CART, uh, Jim Truman, my owner, we went to CART. Uh, VDS Racing had been a big Can-Am Formula 5000 team. They went to CART. Uh, Doug Shearson went to CART. Uh, so, I mean, all of a sudden, all these sports, these road racing teams had made the, had, evolved, had graduated to IndyCar racing. 
And also at the time, you could, you could buy a March chassis. Prior to 81, if you didn't build your own car, you were buying a, you know, a two or three-year-old Penske or a two or three-year-old Wildcat, which was Patrick's car, or some other guy's you know, car. Uh, that was several years old. Now, in 82, you could go buy a, a March chassis, which was as good as any Penske, or in some cases, maybe better, as good as any Chaparral, as good as any Wildcat. So now a team like ours and all these other guys, you could buy a car that was competitive. And you could buy a Cosworth engine, which was the engine to have. Um, in those days, you'd buy them as a kit. So just you'd buy all the pieces, and you'd have some guy, you'd have an engine builder that would put them together. Really? Yeah. A different, very different world than today. They, they were thousand horsepower-ish. No, no. At the time, they were limited. The the boost was limited. So they were at, those, at that day in '82. They were probably only like seven hundred horsepower. Only. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so just real quick, had you had so after college, did you did you get a day job? You might say, or that was good, man. That was a good bounce there. <laughs> um, You're welcome. All right, let's let's do the now, hey, how many, how many how many okay, so are you doing are you dropping both? No. This okay. one and then two weeks now the next one. Okay, okay. Uh part one. I know we're chomping at the bit to see part two. You'll have to wait two weeks, but uh how did you uh I mean it was fun. It was fun for me to sit there uh with him in his in his race museum slash garage mahal slash storage. Uh, it was great. There's also tagged in the post is a link to the Peterson Auto Museum when he when they come and they do the man cave Bobby Ray Hall and they go around the Audubon and, it, and they they actually do a tour of his garage. So while I was sitting in his garage, you guys can go, uh, listeners can go and click on YouTube, click on that link and see the actual video that takes place since Bobby Ray Hall is on the Peterson Auto Museum. Which is the famous auto museum in Los Angeles. Yep. Uh, he they came in and did a special on him about the Audubon and about his man cave they called it. But uh, you can go watch that and see where where we were kind of sitting sitting doing the interview. Um, it, it it was great. I I loved hearing about. I didn't know. I had no idea about his dad. I mean, I loved hearing about his dad. Yeah, I mean, a in living in Glen Ellen, you know, in the early '60s and '70s, you know car racing driving up to canada going all these different places in the you know we take it for granted now how easy it is thank you john grabiel to get from chicago to canada you know you hop on a, a southwest jet and next thing you know you're you're at your location right and you know back then there are trail you know of course we still trailer our cars some of us but um you know how how much that dad must have really been into racing and how he passed it on to his son. And I just loved how he said in the interview about how it really wasn't forced on him. It wasn't a family thing. And then, you know, then how he is so flowerly and so excited about how well his son is doing. So, you know, father and son bonded over cars and how that relationship literally transferred again to him being the father and to his son. So I, I love that story. Yeah, and I, 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 I think it's Ray Hall Foods. I think is the is what his dad started, and I think that's that's still that's still going on. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. For part two, part which will be in two weeks. Join the Audubon Country Club podcast. I can't wait to two. finish it. 
I can't wait to hear the rest of this because he's left me hanging on some stuff. So, <laughs> you know, A, I want to know how, because we didn't touch upon it in the first part. So, John, kind of teased, do we get to know how he falls in love with the Autobot? Uh, we, we, we hear that. We hear talk about from the beginning and about how he got involved. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. So, uh, recap, a lot of racing last weekend, a lot of racing coming up, Um, all kinds of stuff happening at the Autobahn. We're wrapping up, let's see, we have all of September and all of October, so really two months and a couple weeks to go in the season. So, uh, come out and enjoy all the festivities. There's been an amazing, hey, let's save this and talk about a a tiny recap of the season so far next show. Okay, sounds perfect. All right. We'll talk to you then. Thanks, All right, Mark. Brother. Have a great Producer one. Mark Bye-bye. for being on the show. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast. <laughs>